What can we learn from teaching the next wave of college students data and AI? What interesting challenges and opportunities are unearthed when 25 years of data leadership meets a young and eager class of AI students? Today, I'm joined by Kishore Aradia, who has led data teams at organizations such as Staples, Bose, Stanley Black & Decker, and many, many more. He is currently teaching classes in data engineering, gen AI, and large language models at Northeastern University. He shared tons of his insight with me. Please welcome Kishore. Welcome to Evolving Industry, a no BS podcast about business leaders who are successfully weaving technology into their company's DNA to forge a better path forward. If you're looking to actually move the ball forward rather than spinning around in a tornado of buzzwords, you're in the right place. I'm your host, George Jagosinski. Kishore, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here. It's something that I was really excited about to explore with you because you, you're you're at a really different, you're a really interesting point in that you've got 25 years of experience behind you and data, analytics, insights, AI, ML, automation in the industry. And now you're teaching students. And, and I'm curious to explore a little bit of What's the um, the cold, hard reality that's hitting these students when they come in versus their maybe idealistic views of what might be going on with AI? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I always start off with the students uh, trying to kind of extrapolate and trying to get down to the real deal in terms of that, meaning a lot of them come in saying, oh, we're going to build this model. Oh, we're going to do this. Oh, we're going to... Are we going to use this new tool or whatever the new tool of the day uh, is? And I always go back to the saying, look, at the end of the day, the most important thing is data, the right kind of data. So what's the quality of the data that you have? And is the data the right fit for the business question that you want to go after? So I always start off with them saying, first and foremost, before you dig into any kind of either in the role of data engineer or a data analytics engineer or data science, you really need to first understand what problem are we trying to solve? Once you get a decent handle about that, only then you start to look it up and try to figure out is the right kind of domain. Do you have the right kind of knowledge uh, of folks to help you with that? So that's kind of where I, I go start off with that. I love that. I know we're always preaching that. You know, people kind of just like how a golfer likes to buy a new golf club. You know, organizations tend to just buy technology for technology's sake, and, and you have to go back to what what is it we're actually trying to solve here. I'm I'm curious some of the techniques because. These students, I'm assuming, mostly don't have a lot of that time in the trenches to have that pattern recognition of what problems. What What are some of your techniques to to get them more problem oriented? Yeah, I always start off by saying, look look from the first principles. I mean, and one of the things that I had to do that is to show Matt Turks this big thing where there's so many different, <laughs> so many different vendors, if you will, right? thousands of them. And I say one of the challenges as you enter the workforce, no matter where it is. Everybody will have their own pet tool, if you will, that they want to use or that they would like to use. You should always question everything in terms of what problem is it trying to solve? What is the basic fundamental need of that? Not the tool, but the problem it is trying to solve. Like if you're looking, for example, data transformation techniques, there's so many tools that are out there that does that, like Matillion, you, you, know, you name it, there's, there's so many of them that are out there. 
The question then becomes, can we do that with minimally, with fewer amount of these integration pipelines, fewer amount of these technologies bringing into force? Can you first do it using simple Python scripts, for example? Can you use it using with, with Airflow? I mean, Airflow, is, is, you need a standard orchestration tool. Hang, uh, fix on one or two of this orchestration tool and see if we can get the same thing done without any of the other abstraction layer around that. So I always go down to the first principle, saying, what is it that you're trying to do? And try to minimize the number of interactions of different techniques you bring into it. Always start, I always say this is the older software engineering principles is the best code written is the one that's not, right? At the end of the day, because it's less maintenance, less thing. It's the same thing that need to apply in, in, in this in the data engineering world as well. It made me laugh because I'm sure you remember the days when productivity was measured on how many lines of code you were cranking out, which is just the silliest thing in the world. It, it really is. And I always try to get them to use uh, managed services, used serverless, use things that have already been built, that have already been hardened. Don't try to invent those things. Create value further upstream to the business. Do not try to do that at the downstream level because nobody really cares. Honestly, nobody really cares about if you're written the fanciest code or not. Is this provide value to the business in a reliable way? That's all they care about. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then when we talk about AI, um, you know, we can all be grumpy about there's a lot of buzz versus reality and and what's real. What I'm interested to hear from you is, is you know, you're dealing with, with real students who are preparing them for real jobs and what's next. Um, what are you finding that's this maybe heartening and disheartening as far as what you're hear, what you're seeing as far as AI and, and the students? Yeah, it's it actually takes on an interesting note. Some students are more tuned to that than others. Those who are more tuned to it somehow believe magically that using either you know, Copilot or any of the uh, GitHub Copilot, whatever it is helps them to kind of not focus on the fundamentals, not focus on the things that's, that leads them to get there, right? That's that's one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is people are just like, well, this is just, it's not going to change our life. It's not going to be that, which is surprising to me that there people would actually think that way. It is going to change. And one of the things I tried to get them to see is use these tools, so I tell them, use them in the class. I expect you to use them because there will be others using it. but the most important thing there is to understand that whatever be the scaffolding, whatever be the you know the code that gets spit out, you need to understand: is it the right fit? Is it the right place for it to be used using these libraries or using these routines? Because every organization has certain basic approaches to building capabilities out. They have certain principles. They have certain you know approaches to using code you know formatting in a certain way or what have you there are certain things like with python of course you know you use the standard pip you know, there are standard mechanisms pilot there's mechanisms you can do that so learn to figure out what that is so that when you use these systems at play these you know copilots of the world at play that you know to discern what should be used or what should be ignored so that's kind of the way that I kind of said, use the tool, but use it in a critical way. Just like critical reading is important, critical thinking is important. You need to know the fundamentals. It's other than just to let the tool do the work for you and think it's going to solve the problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one that I feel kind of out of touch with that age range right now, because my child, she's six years old and I'm now 
you know, mid forties and, and, um, we don't have a lot of, you know, fresh out of college employees at our company. I'm curious what other just general challenges are you seeing? I, I mean, one I can think of is, um, how many times have we been in an organization where you try to solve a problem and you've got some people that have been there for a while. They said, Oh, we've tried to solve that before. You're not going to be able to solve it. Right? You, you combine that with these more junior people and new technology in the mix. And I'm curious if you're seeing that, if, if you have any, um, kind of techniques and approaches on how, how to overcome that. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. We're entering into a generational uh, uh, shift, if you will, in terms of, and I think we've all seen this, I've been doing this for over 25 years. So over the years, you know, there's always been the folks who have been there, done that. Like I've seen this happen. And there are folks entering the workforce who kind of feel that they can bring in these new or new approaches to doing it. I think there's value from both sides of the equation. And so what I have done in a lot of organizations where I've led those organizations and helped bring those in, I've run internship programs and I've run, you know, uh, organizations that kind of mold both approaches to doing it is you need to build consensus within those two forces, if you will. One of that is to have a sense of, a strong sense of empathy and respect for what has been there before. Like one of the first things I always teach my students is, Everybody, people who have been there doing it, no, nobody wants to do a bad job. Everybody wants, everybody's doing the best that they can with the information that they have, with the knowledge that they have, right? So now when you come into that fore and have those conversations, be respectful of the fact that things have been done for a reason. Understand what those reasons are before you kind of, you know, provide alternative approaches to solving that problem, right? I'm not saying that is, you know, that alternative problems are not going to help solve problems. It it might very well change the way that things are being done because we all know that it's a sunk cost. Like we have sunk our mind, our, we, have, we have expanded so much of our investment in a particular technology and a particular way of doing it that you, as human nature, to not to change that. Hey, I'm doing this. I know this has worked really well for me in the past. I want to continue to work that work for me, right? It's human nature. Understand that. So I kind of work from both angles of it to kind of help them see this value in it. And then you kind of, one of the approaches that I've taken is to kind of force function that activity in terms of saying, we need to get this problem solved for this particular reason and by this particular amount of time based on this cost structures that we have today. And so not to go off and build this fancy thing in terms of, you know, polishing it until it looks nice and good, but we need to solve this problem. So there are certain things that are mechanisms that I've done that that kind of allows us to get to the point where we need to be. I love all that. And the, the empathy part really resonates with me because I know even personally, I've gone through the journey of, you know, I was younger in my career as a software engineer, I'd go in and you go through that phase of what is this, all this garbage, just throw it out and let's write it over. And then, you know, as I've progressed and myself and just us as a company, we've done very, you know, countless audits and assessments of what's been done. I've almost turned it into an, a, a more positive looking game of, hey, all this stuff was done for a reason. I bet we could reverse engineer what those reasons were as we look at this, right? You know, they were under a time constriction, a resource constriction, you know, whatever it might have been. It was, I, I really like the fact that what you said, no, no one did that because they wanted to do a bad job. It's just the nature of the constraints that you're within, yeah. right? And, and also, another thing I tried to have them to see is what about a future version of you? 10 years from now, you talk to that person, you yourself will come back and say, maybe I shouldn't have done it. Hindsight is always easy. (laughs) 
always come back and say, yeah, I could have done it differently. I'm sure you'll feel the same way. I felt the same way when I came when I first out of the journey. And then I was like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I mean, there's a better way to do that. So it's we're all human. We're all trying to figure out what the best thing to do. Evolving Industries brought to you by Intevity. We bring order to chaos wherever people, process, and technology converge. Our culture drives our solutions, and we are solution-obsessed. We see every challenge as an opportunity, every partner as a collaborator, and every project as a chance to share our values and commitment to excellence. Give us a shout. We'd love to hear your challenges and turn them into opportunities. Find out more at Intevity.com. Now, back to the show. You know, I talked about the generational shift. I'm always very drawn to the the or, or big organizational shifts. You know, I think you've been at quite a few organizations that, you know, they're shifting possibly from B2B to more B2C or, you know, or balance figuring out how to more, you know, attack both of those channels at, at the same time and in smarter ways. And, you know, I just think about Stanley Black & Decker. What I love about that company is, man, 180 years ago, they started just making bolts and hinges for doors, Right. And now I'm assuming are inundated with data and trying to figure out what they're doing with data. And, and I'm curious your, your perspective on how do you make sense of that? How do you prioritize? Um, how do you play into that, that shift from, uh, from, is it a B2B to B2C or is it just how do you engage with your B2B in, in more interesting ways? Yeah, that's interesting. You bring up Stanley as one of my more recent uh, thing. And I've also worked at other organizations like Staples, which was both the B2B and the B2C kind of thing. And similar to that at Bose, um, the headphone that's provided a great, great product. And again, that is a B2C side of the equation as well. But there's also some elements when you work with the automotive world where both systems were in there. So you got a B2B there, right? So it's an interesting thing when you uh, frame it in terms of B2C or B2B. I think that world is kind of converging to the point that it's like you provide a data is getting um, created in an operational, in a transactional way. Um, it's almost like the, the the digital, I hate to use this word digital exhaust, but it's one of those things that's been, the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the existence of a business creates this data inherently. So the question then becomes from a data from a data engineering or from a CDO perspective or whoever it is that I've engaged with in the past, one of the challenges is how do you detect the signal from the noise? And so part of the challenge is what are some of the underlying approaches you take to that? We used relational systems in the past that we continue to do that, but also the graph-based approaches to doing it, right? the knowledge graph approach to doing it. These are some of the things we were trying to explore um, to bring it back to the point. It's standing back and back. As you said, rightly said, we, are, we have thousands of products and we have actually quite a few, I would say close to 20, 30, 40, 50 brands, if you will, under the course or M&A over the, over the years, years acquired. So you got all these different, uh, especially with the supply chain things that we went through uh, recently, uh, and it's still kind of uh, going through with that is how do you able to map out these different parts, for example? Like, you know, you got you, you got a bill of materials. You got so many different things to it. How do you kind of reason around it? How do you kind of build systems around it so you can ask the right questions to with that or to that so you can get the information that you need in order to go invest in the right kind of areas or build the right kind of products so that you can sell it in the... Again, you're selling in over 190 countries. So you got to have a sense of, where's being so what's being done right and also 
the the folks who are using these tools or using these mechanisms are very different. They may not be digitally savvy as you would expect them to be, but they know a good product when they see it. So the question then becomes, how do you incorporate these signals into these uh, machines? A lot of them moving into electric systems, right? Uh, electrical, cordless. So those are all can, can create these signals, if you will. And how do you pull those systems out of that? And also manufacturing units, right? You got a lot of those things going through with it. So you gotta you got to create these uh, manufacturing digital twins, if you will, so that you can then start to figure out, okay, how can we make things better? What are some of the signals that we can get from it? And what are the kinds of things we can attract from that? So without digging, going too much into details, those are the contours of some of the things that we kind of think through. Think through. That's great. It's really interesting. I'd love to double click a little bit on the knowledge graphs. You know, some of the audience, they might not have any idea what that even is. I'd love to hear it. You know, how, how are you seeing them being leveraged? What what are they and how are you seeing them being leveraged? Yeah, when you think about it, right, it, this is an interesting thing as I'm kind of teaching one of those classes at, at, at Northeastern. Um, I was going back and kind of mapping out how we ended up in the relational world that we are in today, right? And back in the, in, in, in the late uh, 50s or so, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there was a group that had come together. I think it was Cortisol. I don't remember the exact name. But what they had put together was they had put together the three or four of those things. And the graph aspect to that, the ability to connect different things, the relationship side of it, was part of that original, shall we say, their thinking behind it. But the problem was the systems, the computational systems, the things that were there in, in those days were not there for it to, it was, it was turning out to be extremely, shall we say, challenging to computationally provide the query mechanism to get the relationships in the way that we do today. today. So the relational algebra, that's what really took up. It's basically two math sites. There, there, there is you know, the relational, uh, there's that the algebra side of it, and then the set theory, all those things side of it, and then there's the graph theory side of it, right? So basically, the, all the computational elements and all the thinking card and all those folks came together to put all the pieces together. This kind of really optimized and took off, right? Uh, with, the, with the Oracle, with the IBM DB2, all those things kind of really focused on that to help build the capability out. So when that happened, even though in more recent times, uh, in the last 20 plus years, you're seeing data that's getting more focused on the relational side of it, right? The networks of it, if you will, uh, whether it's the, you know, the social networks, right? That's kind of really created this entire area of it. That's why you got the NoSQL, even though I hate the term NoSQL, but anyway, all those things kind of came through the fore. And so you start to realize that not only is the entities themselves critical, but also the relationships between the entities are equally, if not more critical and needed. So you got the LinkedIn's of the world, right? We used it a lot. So at the end of the day, those things are all relational in nature. And in a similar nature, it doesn't have to be social, right? It could be supply chain, as we were just talking about earlier, or it could be even the parts, for example. What are the parts that goes into making this particular tool? That particular little part or, or a screw, what are the size of the screw, could be used in thousands of other products, right? And then you start building out relationships around those things. So you could start to see things around you and you see a lot of those things. And especially nowadays with um, Neoforge, it's a whole bunch of graph. You know, I don't want to mention any one or the other, not, not, not talk about the others, but there's a whole bunch of areas that's coming together. And with the 
generative AI with the LLMs coming together, you're going to see a lot of those intersection of how LLMs can build, construct knowledge graphs, can help build those ontologies, can help build those value uh, within that thing. That, to me, I think is a very interesting uh, space that's going to grow further as we as we kind of go. Because people are getting challenged with the RAG models that are currently being built with. And that's the typical standard thing, right? Whereas here, with more of a static, more ontology-driven thing, then you get real data faster uh, and more, um, shall we say, accurate data you get out of it. Yeah. I, I love it. And, and I'm, I've always been a big fan of, of link analysis and network visualization. I, that, I was doing that a, a while ago. But, but for the, the sole reason, it becomes so easy, so much easier to discover things in it that you hadn't been thinking about. Um, you know, as an example for the audience here is um, in a network of people, you might have one person who is the connector. Right, that one person that is the one person between multiple groups of people, or you might have some person who is unique in that they're completely off to the edge from everyone else, and you apply that to parts, and you can now all of a sudden what where that choke point is in your supply chain, right? Or you can see where the opportunity is, and and then when you start layering over, you know, AI on top of there to then discover what those choke points are and, and find different ways, it's just such a much more natural way of of discovering these things, right? It, it absolutely is. When you apply the reasoning engine, which is nothing, the LLM is more than a reasoning engine. Uh, it's flawed, but still a reasoning engine. When you apply that against this ontology map, if you will, against this, now you're going to see some interesting value proposition. I think we're still in the early days of that. But I see a lot of uh, organizations, a lot of startups, a lot of those things getting to focus more on that. So I think we're going to see, a, because as, as you said, rightly said, right? We as humans naturally think of things as relationships. We do not think of it as things don't live by itself. Nothing is kind of lives on its own. Everything is connected to everything else, right? And so the, the real value is at the edges, is at the connections. It's less to do, I'm not saying that's not important. The entities themselves are important, obviously. But we are, I think we have solved the problem in the sense that we have many systems, many optimizations around it help to get to need to get that. But how do you get the relationships, all the different pieces together? And also, how do you think about it in terms of applying to other areas? People get too focused on, oh, the LinkedIn's or the Facebook world. Yes, they're important, but the underlying aspects to that can be applied in so many other areas, in health-related areas. Think about that. All the different the billing systems, mundane things like that, right? financial systems. So think about all the different touch points to all these different things. So I think we are at the uh, very early stages of that, but I get excited talking about that. That's, that's interesting. Oh, same with me. I mean, as the, the wise philosopher musician said, the hip bone's connected to the thigh bone, right? So everything's, <laughs> yeah. everything's connected. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so stepping out of graphs, you know, it, you know, with your, your many years of experience and, and your interactions with these, the, the, the educational facilities and the students right now, what are you most excited about looking forward? I think, you know, they're entering an area where it is going to be extremely challenging for a lot of the folks, right? It's not like when we were entering the field where, you know, you learned, I'm just making it up here, sim oversimplifying it, but just you're really good in one programming language, whether it is in those days C, C++, whatever it was, then you could kind of use that to kind of you know fork an entry into different aspects of the areas, and obviously you needed to know data structures, the standard uh, CS stuff, right? And I'm not saying that that's not, uh, not important, but the thing that really kind of helped drive home the point was in one of these things. But nowadays, 
your knowledge should be so varied. It needs to be a lot broader than the, than the need used to be. Because there's so many touch points in which things are happening. And the goal nowadays, honestly, I think, is less to do with going very deep into one particular area at the cost, because the opportunity cost, when you think about that, your goal, you need to be able to have a pretty good intuition on different aspects of it, on different, whether it's software engineering or whether it's an AI. Now you've got all this NLP, you've got all these different areas. So, so when you think about all those areas, you really need to be able to reason at different levels across horizontally while you kind of pick one or two areas of focus areas, if you will, and then kind of go deep into those things. But you cannot go all, all over the place. And I find myself having these conversations with the students like, what about this? What about this? I want to do this. Yes, you can go after doing so many different things, but then you not, you're going to lose sight of what you are focusing on. So I think focus becomes a huge, uh, I think it's a huge challenge, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing more and more the rise. Of, you know, this is the age of the generalist, right? Or, you know, we talk about our M-shaped or our T-shaped uh, resources where you, you go broad and then deep into one or two. Um, that That's pr- very much in alignment with um, with what we've been building out, what we're seeing out there as well. Um, you know, I'm curious as, as someone who who owns and runs a business that's in this space, how can I best be leveraging these this new round of talent that's coming out? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because uh, when when you think about this, we are where we are. Obviously, uh, I think it's been much used inflection point, right? Uh, just like the way when the browsers and landscape back in the late nineties came on board, people didn't really realize what it could do, right? They were like, "Oh, just throw up a web page. Yeah, what does it do? Really, it's not really going to change our lives too much, right?" And then, but it, we saw the evolution of that to where we are today, where it's like, well, of course you can use it, you know that, right? We are at the same kind of inflection point, but this is happening at such an accelerated pace that it is almost in all of humanity. I don't think we're gonna, uh, we have seen this kind of disruption that is going to come our way. The question then becomes, given the fact that these general purpose technologies, I use the word general purpose technology for these general AI tools, that could be used in so many facets of a business. We're talking about a business. Let's say you have a business. You have a business workflow. You have a mechanism in which you want creating value from one end to the other end, delivering value to your customer. So all along that line, you see a lot of different opportunities for automation, for example, optimization. So you see all these different places along the way. I think the, the organization that is able to map that to the underlying technology, and not just, when I use the word technology, I use it in a general term. People, process technology, obviously, are embedded as part of that. To get the right people to look at it in those approaches helps you optimize it faster, helps you deliver value faster. So that, to me, is what is going to differentiate success from failure. Like, if your organization needs to be successful, you really need to get down to that level of it. And leverage, 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 experiment, and try it out different areas. Yeah, and be really nimble as you do it. You know, I was, I was thinking back recently to the days of, um, you know, two, three-year implementations of platforms, and I think those days are completely behind us, gone. right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Anything that takes you more than a few weeks, you need to question it, honestly. 
I mean, it's, it's strange for me to say that, but I understand larger organizations, it's not going to change overnight drastically. But interestingly enough, large complex organizations, even if you can make small tweaks, I think as you and I were talking about a little bit earlier, a small tweak here, a small tweak there could then translate to a larger you know, impetus down the thing. So, so I think that's the key there is to understand where you're going to provide the biggest value and don't think in terms of months. Forget about months <laughs> in terms of weeks to get get things done. Yeah, I mean, even just looking at physics, you can move very large things with just lots of little things. It just makes a lot of sense. So, Kishore, thanks so much for being here. I really enjoyed this. I always like to finish with um with a fun question, which is in in life, in your career, anywhere. What's the best advice you've ever received? Curiosity. Be curious about mm. everything. Don't don't accept things for what they are. Always question. Always be curious. And don't ever be afraid of asking questions because nobody has the complete answers to everything. Just just be curious and ask questions. Don't don't worry about looking dumb or anything like that. So because we all are, we all were at some point in our career. So. Uh, well, as someone with the name of George and a slew of Curious George books behind me, I, I am 100% behind that, that advice. So, sure. Thank you very much again. This was great. Thanks for listening to Evolving Industry. For more, subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And pretty please drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're watching or listening on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and smash the bell button for notifications. If you know someone who's pushing the limits to evolve their business, reach out to the show at evolvingindustry@intevity.com. Reach out to me, George Jagosinski on LinkedIn. I love speaking with people getting the hard work done. The business environment's always changing, and you're either keeping up or going extinct. We'll catch you next time, and until then, keep evolving.